0: Revelation chapter 11, so if you'll open up there please to Revelation chapter 11. This evening we come to one of the most interesting parts of the book of Revelation in my opinion. Uh, Some of you may disagree with me on which are the most interesting parts and maybe you're still waiting to get to whatever your interesting part is. But I find this part of the Bible just a fascinating study because I love to see how The Bible all fits together into one cohesive book. I'm interested in how that God spoke to us and made all these things come together so that to understand the scriptures well you have to start at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 verse number 1 go all the way through until you come to Revelation 22 verse number 21 and just get the whole picture of all the redemptive purpose of God. And so we have here in this 11th chapter one of these places where the Old Testament and the New Testament blend together. And this does give us a picture of God's redemptive purpose. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden with the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. One of the things that was so useful during the Protestant Reformation is, I guess, what we could call the recovery of the gospel. The Reformers came to the place where the Baptists already were, and that was they began to preach the gospel again. And they thought it was very important that they exposit the Scriptures, and that they would do it in a systematic way so that the entire Bible would come together and then give us the full picture. Now, this is really what we're trying to do here at Berean. We take the Scriptures, and we study book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we have this systematic approach to the Scriptures so that we don't skip around and we don't give you bits and pieces here and there and give you a puzzle that you may not be able to put together. I really do think that the bane of much fundamental preaching today is that preachers use a topical method in which they lift the Scriptures out of their context And I think that that lends to doctrinally weak churches. And it ends up with people in these kinds of positions that we talked about a Wednesday night or so ago, a couple weeks ago, where they say things like, why do we argue over doctrine? Let's just go out there and win souls. Why does the doctrine matter? Well, it's in these finer points of Scripture that we really find the growth of Christians. The finer points give us the strength of our faith. And if we don't have these then eventually the gospel is lost. And what we end up with is an easy believism, and we end up with a a very gross misunderstanding of the lordship of Christ. And I think that's what we see in churches today. And so I'm happy that we can come to the Scriptures and take them verse by verse. And we take the Scriptures that way, and they will all come together. It ties the story together so that we get a good picture of what God is trying to tell us. Now, having said that, I want you to stand with me as we read our text verses. And as we get in a little bit more into the message, you'll understand more about the comments that I've just made. But we're looking at Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And uh, the verse that I want to concentrate on tonight is verse number 19. So let's start at verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded... And there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Now verse 19, and uh, we'll concentrate on this as we get into the message. Verse 19, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your people who have gathered here tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you would open up your word before us and that you would speak to our hearts with these great truths that we learn in the book of Revelation. Bless now as we preach the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This is the uh, third message that I preach from these verses, and these particular verses in Revelation chapter 11 encapsulate the final 11 chapters of Revelation. This is a synopsis, it's a summary of what takes place in the last half of this book. Now what we have here in these verses is a stopping point. Uh, This is a place where the people of God can gather themselves so they can catch their breath, you might say. And we're going over here the things that have happened during the time that Christ raptured the church, all the way up through the three and a half years, first three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, what will come next after this place is the worst part of the tribulation. Now, all of it's bad. Uh, Rest assured, all of it's bad, and you probably gathered that from what we've already preached in uh, these first 11 chapters. But what comes next is really the worst of it all. God's wrath is intensified, and so this particular part is called the Great Tribulation because here God is going to pour out final judgments upon the earth, and this will usher in the Millennial Kingdom and then the final purging of the earth from the curse of sin. Now these verses in chapter 11, this last part, are a synopsis of that time. And here the people of God are reminded that even though things are so bad, uh, things are horrible, yet they are reminded that God is in control. As bad as things may be, this is really God's method of bringing the world to an end. So they see that God is running the show. He's the one who's calling the shots, and God and his people will be the ultimate victors. Now, what I'd like to do now is to go through the first points of our discussion very quickly, what we talked about in those first two messages, and then we're going to get into this 19th verse. But we began in verse number 15 with the trumpet that sounds. In verse 15, there's the sounding of the seventh trumpet, And this comes after the opening of the seventh seal on redemption scroll. This is a trumpet of judgment. It's a trumpet that sounds out that uh, God is going to bring final judgment upon the earth. But we also learn that it's it's a trumpet of coronation. It announces that Christ is the king. Of course, we understand that Christ is already the king. He's always been the king. But now he is about to enforce his rule then that was accentuated by the triumph of the king. The announcement is made in verse number 15, The kingdoms of this world are be king, come the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And we notice there that that is spoken of as a thing that's already done. Uh, the narrative still has 11 chapters to go, and that will explain how it happens. But there in that one verse, eleven fifteen, it's spoken of as it's already done. Now, the kingdoms of this world are at present actually consolidated under one king and in one kingdom, and that's the kingdom of Satan. So what Christ will do, he will overthrow that kingdom, and then all the kingdoms of the world will come under the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we talked about the timeless kingdom, and he shall reign forever and ever. So once Christ exercises authority and dominion, he's never going to relinquish it. The millennial kingdom is established. Now, of course, we understand that millennial means 1,000 years. He's going to reign. Christ is going to reign for 1,000 years upon the earth. But that doesn't mean when 1,000 years are over that things change again. But rather, all that Jesus does, he shifts his kingdom, he shifts his reign to the new heavens and the new earth. So he never does relinquish control. Fourthly, we talked about the temperament of the world. The nations are angry. It's what it says in verse number 18. And that's because they don't want to submit to Christ's authority. And I pointed out last week that the millennial kingdom is not going to make happy campers out of the world. Uh, Evil is still in their hearts. They still resist God. They resist the authority of Jesus Christ. They're not regenerate. And so these people kick against the goads because they don't want to submit to the authority of Christ. Now be sure of this, perfect peace will reign, evil is restrained, but it's not because of anything that man has done, it's because the word of God says that Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Then fifthly, we talked about the time of judgment. All are going to be judged. Verse 18 says, the dead will be judged and rewards will be given to the saints. But these aren't simultaneous judgments. The wicked dead are not judged at the same time as the righteous. The judgments are separated by at least 1,000 years. The people of God are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's a time when Christ passes out rewards for our faithful service to him in this life. So there aren't any decisions made at the judgment seat of Christ whether people are allowed to go into heaven. That's already been decided. In fact, that was a decision that was made in eternity past, before the world ever began. That decision was made, and then it was finalized at the cross of Christ when Jesus took our judgment for us. But the wicked are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. And this is a judgment that takes place just before the earth is purged with fire, and a new heaven and a new earth comes. And, again, that's neither a time to decide whether anyone who's wicked will be able to go into heaven. Because this judgment is simply to uh, determine the degree of the punishment that those who have rejected Christ will receive. Well, that brings us up then to verse number 19. And here we have just a wonderful verse that's packed with, with just so much meaning for the people of God. So here we see the sixth point here is the temple of God. Verse number 19 and the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail the temple of God was opened in heaven there is a temple of God in heaven now that might be somewhat confusing to us to us because uh, we wonder well, where is this temple of God in heaven Does that mean because uh, with all the mansions that are there and with all the heavenly buildings perhaps that are there that here we come and we find one street and there's one address and there it says temple on it. So is there a place there where there is a building with a spire or a steeple like a church has and this is where all the people gather to worship God? No. The temple of God is synonymous with the dwelling of God. And this is the same as when we talk about the throne of God. The temple is the place of God's throne. And what it means is to come into the presence of God. Now that is a, especially significant when we look into the Old Testament and we see God's command for Moses to build the tabernacle. Moses was given a blueprint after which to build the tabernacle. Now just like an architect begins with a plan, he begins with a conception of what he wants to build, so Moses was working according to a plan. In Exodus 25, God said to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So this was a place where God would dwell with them. Of course, we know that God is everywhere. When Solomon built the temple, he said, "...but will God indeed dwell on in the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built A building cannot contain God." But this is a place where God was going to put a visible manifestation of his glory. Here was something that God was going to put before them that was real before their eyes. God would come and he would fill that tabernacle. And then when the temple was built, he would fill it. And then the people of God would know that God was with with them. Now the Exodus account tells us that this was according to a pattern. And Hebrews tells us where the pattern came from. Hebrews 9, verse 24 says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there we see that the tabernacle is a figure of the true. The true is what is in heaven. Now, if the temple of God is in heaven, and the tabernacle and the temple were built According to that heavenly blueprint, and that certainly says something very significant about all three. The temple in heaven, the tabernacle, and the temple here upon the earth. Now, in that tabernacle that was built, there was one compartment called the Holy of Holies. There was no one who was actually able to go into that particular place except the high priest. He could only go there uh, one time per year, and that was on the great day of atonement. And the priest would go into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, and he would go into this place that no one was able to see but him. And when he went in there, he sprinkled the blood and he was in the presence of God. Now we have a a slide that we used in the tabernacle study. And this shows the priest on the Day of Atonement going in and sprinkling the blood upon the mercy seat. That light that you see shining in front of him is the glory of God. That's the presence of God in dwelling between the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. Now, only the priest was allowed to see that. The tabernacle was shut up. I mean, this was a compartment that was closed off, and no one is allowed to go there. No one could see behind that curtain except the priest on one, this one particular day. Now, if we look at our text verse again, it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven. Now, that is a significant statement, and you don't get the full impact of it until you know that the people of God could not go into the temple. They couldn't go into the tabernacle. That was the place where God dwells. And so when the temple of God is opened up in heaven, this shows us communing with God. The temple is opened up so that God's people can come directly into His presence. Now, on earth, we're told that no man can see God and live. But when we get into heaven, we're transformed. We're in glorified, sinless bodies. And so we're welcomed into the throne room of God. And that has special significance in this part of the Scripture because the Jewish people are ready to go into the millennial kingdom. And they've been shut out from God's presence. But here, they're given a look, a glimpse of the surety that God will have communion with them. Now, as we think about this, what is it that actually... Kept people from the presence of God. Well, it hasn't always been that way. We can go back to Genesis and we find there that in the garden, God walked and he talked with Adam. Adam was created in innocence. There was no sin. And so Adam had fellowship with God. So the word of God says he talked directly with God. He walked with God. But then Adam sinned and he was cast out of God's presence. Sin separated him from God, and so Adam was shut out from the Garden of Eden. There were cherubim that were placed there with a flaming sword. Adam was not allowed to go back in. No one was able to go into the garden again. And folks, it's been that way ever since. None of us can see God because sin separates us from His presence. Now, the wonderful thing about this tabernacle that was built is that God was coming with a promise of reconciliation. God was coming here in his love and putting a step forward, a footstep forward, to bring man back into his presence again. Now, when that priest entered into the Holy of Holies, there he could glimpse God's presence. He could bring the sprinkling of the sacrifice. And as we all know, that sprinkling typified the blood of Jesus Christ that would be shed for us upon the cross. And so when Christ's blood was poured out, when that atoning sacrifice was made, those words of Christ rang out, it is finished. And with that, God symbolized that the way to him was open. And do you remember what the Word of God says? It says that the the veil in the temple was torn in two. This veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies God took his own hand and he tore it from the top to the bottom. And that symbolized that the way to God is opened through the blood of Jesus Christ. When that veil was torn, it more correctly represented the heavenly temple. Because in the heavenly temple, there is no veil. The way to God is open. The temple of God is opened up in heaven. And this is simply God's way of saying to us, there are no barriers. There's nothing that's hidden there is no veiling sin has been defeated sin is gone and so there's nothing that keeps us from seeing god and basking in the light of his presence the evil that infects men's bodies the the sin that besets us that affects our our holiness all of that it's forever defeated and done away with now this then is a synopsis of all that and this we're going to learn how all that becomes a reality So that when we come to the details a little bit later on, we'll get into the last chapter in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and we see a remarkable difference between what's in heaven and what's on this polluted earth. Now, I want you to turn there for just a minute. Revelation chapter 22, uh, 21 rather, Revelation chapter 21. And this whole chapter is a description of the new Jerusalem. But I want us to look at the last few verses. Revelation chapter uh, 21. Look at verse number 22. Now listen to this peculiar statement. John says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Now how is that possible? mean we just read in chapter 11 that there is a temple in heaven, that the temple of God is opened up. And here John says, I saw no temple therein. Is that a contradiction? Not at all. It simply means that the whole city is the temple of God. The whole place is the dwelling of God. All of it's the presence of God. So there's not a street address. There's not a location for the temple. The whole city is God's temple. Now look at verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now look at verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever maketh abomination or maketh a lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now there is the reason why that the temple in heaven can be opened up. Where there is sin, there is a veil. Where there is sin, there is no permission to come into God's presence. But in this city, the word of God says nothing enters there that works an abomination. There is no sin in this place. All of God's people have become sinlessly perfect, and now they are invited To come into the presence of God. And so this is God simply saying to us all. Come in. You're welcome. Come on in. And come into my presence. Now isn't that a marvelous thing? And all of that comes out of nine words in chapter 11. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. You see to get the impact of that statement. You have to know something about the Old Testament. You have to have knowledge of the tabernacle. And what God was trying to get across to us there. Four years ago, we did a study on the tabernacle and I told you that it would touch everything that we study in the Word of God. It would open up so many places that would make our understanding better. So that temple of God in heaven, John sees it. But then we find something else in the 19th verse. It also says here, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of the Testament. So number seven is the testimony of the Ark. And there was seen in his temple, the ark of his testament. Now, here we go back to the Old Testament again. Uh, The ark of the testament, the ark of the covenant, is the most fascinating article of furniture that was in the tabernacle. In fact, it is the most important piece. It was a symbol of God's covenant with us. Now, next week, I I should say covenant of God with Christ. Uh, Next week, we're going to come back to this particular part of it, we're going to do a a little bit more intensified study of the ark, we're going to go back where we were four years ago, and we're going to expand a little bit upon the ark of the covenant. I mean, I think it's so important. It's so important in the economy of of God's working among his people that we just need to know more about it. So I'm going to preach on it a little bit more. But let me briefly just tell you some things that you can think about until next week. Uh, First of all, the ark is the symbol of the covenant with God. It's called the Ark of Testimony. It's called Holy. It's the Covenant of God. Uh, This Ark is a piece of furniture that was behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies. And it was so sacred that it couldn't be touched. In order for the priest to carry it, they had to put long staves into rings that were on the side of it. And they would hoist it up on the shoulders of the priest. They could not touch it. They dare not touch it. And if they did, they, they were immediately struck dead. And you remember that story how uh, Uzzah, maybe perhaps in a well-meaning gesture, tried to steady the ark when it was about to fall off a cart, but he broke God's commandment. And there are a couple of things that were wrong there. First of all, the ark of the covenant was never to be transported on carts. It was always supposed to be carried by the priest. But they were, had it on a cart. He reached out his hand to touch it and to steady it because he thought it was going to fall. And like that, God struck him dead. And the reason that he did it was because this spoke of God's holy one. It was the most holy thing that God had there among the people. And it was a picture of God's covenant of redemption. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was also made after a pattern of the heavenly. It was a little box that Moses constructed that was wood overlaid with gold. The wood speaks of the humanity of Christ, and the gold speaks of his deity And, of course, that tells us that Jesus was the God-man, both God and man. But it was made according to a heavenly blueprint. And here in the 19th verse, John is allowed to see that heavenly ark. Now, you have to imagine for a moment how significant that was to John. He was raised as a Jew. He knew all the stories about the ark, but he'd never seen it. Uh, It was a powerful symbol that God had given to the Jewish people. In fact, when the, 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 the people would tell their children about the Ark of the Covenant, their eyes would pop open at those stories. It was just a magnificent thing. The power of God was vested in it. John had never seen it. The Ark of the Covenant had been gone for some 500 years by the time that we're reading here. And no one knows what happened to that Ark of the Covenant. Um... Something happened, it disappeared when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, but there is no record in the scripture that tells us what happened to it. It doesn't say the Babylonians captured it. And so that's kind of spawned some rumors about it, some conjectures about it. Uh, some people believe that Jeremiah took the ark and he hid it beneath the beneath the uh, temple mount and Nobody knows where it is, some kind of secret compartment there. And the Jews imagine that someday they'll, they'll be granted access to where they can actually excavate under the Temple Mount and they'll be able to find the Ark of the Covenant. And then there are some people who think that the Ark that John saw was that particular Ark, that it was taken up into heaven. And so that's why you can't find it. And that's why the Bible doesn't tell us where it is particularly because here it is right up here in heaven. I don't believe that's true. I I think the ark that Moses made, I do know this, it was fashioned by man's hands and as good as it was, and uh, it wasn't perfect. It was made by men, and so it's not in heaven. It was made after the pattern of something that is in heaven, and this is what John saw. But nevertheless, that ark is a symbol of God's covenant to redeem. In the ark, the original one that Moses made, there were three items— now we're going to discuss these in more detail next week, but three items that were placed in the ark. So very quickly, the contents of the ark. What, were, what was in it? Well, there were three items, and the first one was the table of the law. A table of the law, that is the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God. That was part of the original contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that is a very significant thing because the... The tables of the law were placed into the ark and they were hidden from view. They were down in the box and they were covered up with the mercy seat. And that shows us that Christ kept the law for us. There was a symbolism in that. Christ protects us from the judgment of God's law. We receive the mercy of God by having sent Christ to be a perfect substitute for us. Christ kept God's law perfectly so that his perfect obedience substitutes for our imperfect obedience. And so when we place our faith in Christ, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that's his perfect obedience by which he kept the law. And that's exactly, if you want to look at it this way, what we've been talking about in Matthew chapter 5 on Sunday mornings. The righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's Christ's own righteousness that is imputed to us by faith. All of that is pictured with the Ark of the Covenant and the keeping of the law in that small box. So God is protecting us from the judgment of the law, and that's done through Christ. Then secondly, in this ark was a golden pot of manna. Uh, God told Moses to save some manna, and he said, put that in a golden pot, and I want you to put it inside the ark. The manna represents God's provision. God takes care of his people, and Manna is significant because Jesus, in fact, explained its purpose. It was more than just food to eat, but that manna represented Christ himself, who was the bread sent down from heaven. Jesus explained all of that. He's the bread of life who came down from heaven. There was a third article in the Ark of the Covenant, and that was Aaron's rod that budded. And we're going to talk more about that next week, but Aaron's rod was... Uh, symbolic of the resurrection of christ here was an old dead twig that suddenly budded it came back to life and that was to tell us that jesus would be raised from the dead and it's also a promise to all of us that as christ was raised from the dead so shall we be raised from the dead now all of those things are important and john got a chance to see that ark that he would heard all these stories about and so John points it out specifically. This temple of God was opened up in heaven, and there he saw the ark of his testimony. And that was a marvelous thing in John's eyes. Now, the book that we're studying here is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a New Testament book. But in the Old Testament, there was also a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's his most perfect representation is here in the ark of the covenant. And that's why we're going to spend more time with it next week. But I want to finish the message by, by pointing out finally the solemn promise of God. The testimony of the ark is a testimony of God's promise to redeem. Now, the strength of the ark is shown by its power. J.A. says a, a divine potency goes along with the ark. Now, let me just give you a A couple of scriptures here that show us the potency of the ark. The first one is in Joshua chapter 3. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles very quickly, uh, we've got quite a bit of verse, quite a few verses to read here. And here we see the power, the potency of the ark of the covenant. Now, this is when Joshua was preparing the people to pass over Jordan. Forty years they had wandered in the wilderness, and finally they're ready to go in. So if you look at Joshua chapter 3, verse number 9. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan." Now therefore, take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man, and it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon in heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priest bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as they that bare the ark were coming to Jordan and the feet of the priest that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of the harvest that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is, beside Zaratan, And those that came down toward the Sea of the Plain, even the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priest that bare the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were clean, passed clean over Jordan." Now there we see a demonstration of God's power with the ark. The ark is the symbol of God's promise to deliver. And it's a symbol that the way that we come to God, the way that we pass from death to life, is through Jesus Christ. Now let's go on to another scripture. We're still in Joshua, so let's turn over to Joshua chapter 6. And here in verse number 1, Joshua 6 verse number 1, now Jericho was straitly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go around about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, And the seventh day you shall come past the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Verse number 8. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them verse 11 So the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about it once and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp verse number 13 And the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the re-reward came after the ark of the Lord and the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. Now down to verse number 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the shout of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him. And they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city. Both man and woman. Young and old. And ox and sheep and ass. With the edge of the sword. Now there are many other scriptures we can go to. And we could read more about it. But here we see the power of the ark. When the priest stepped their feet into the waters of Jordan. Those waters parted and they stood on dry ground. When the ark circled the city of Jericho, the power of God went out from it, and the walls of that city fell down flat. If you go on reading in the Old Testament, you'll find that the enemies of God fell before the ark, and you'll find that the people of God were blessed by its presence. Now, folks, really, the power of the ark is the power of the cross. I mean, in this, we see the very presence of God. That's what the ark symbolized, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, it is finished, sin was defeated. That's when the victory over Satan was accomplished. Now, the promise of God's redemption had come, and Christ spoke of it as being finished when he was on the cross, even though there was still a resurrection to come, still to happen. He spoke it even though there were there has been 2,000 years of history since that time, and it looks to us many times like Satan has free reign. He spoke that as true, even though the tribulation has not started. He spoke it as true, even though the millennial reign has not commenced. He spoke that as true, even though the new heavens and the new earth have not come. And so, as surely as the priests bore that ark when they stepped into the waters of Jordan, when it flattened the walls of Jericho, so the promise that Redemption is accomplished and is applied by the power of the cross, as given by Jesus Christ. Satan will be defeated and all foes cast down. Now, what we have here in these scriptures are respite for the people of God. What they're allowed to see is the final triumph of Christ. There is no doubt about what is going to happen here. The tribulation is still, there's still much to go. But the temple of God is opened up in heaven, and there John sees the Ark of the Covenant, which is a token of God's promise. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, give all the glory to God. He is sovereign in the accomplishment of His eternal purposes. We sang that song this morning, The Power of the Cross. I told Brother Dalton I didn't think we would do that again tonight, but I would like to sing that song again. It touches me every time we do it. So we're going to sing The Power of the Cross tonight. And think about what I've said, and we come back next week and we look in a little bit more to the Ark of the Covenant, just a marvelous revelation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We are just so thankful for your goodness, for your mercy. Most of all, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, the promise that we have of eternal life, the hope that we have that because of the cross, all of our sins are taken away when we place our faith in you. Lord, we just thank you for Christ who has come and help us to remember that every day, that there is a time coming when we will see the face of God. We will come into your presence because sin is will be forever defeated and taken away and we will receive a glorified body made just like the body of Jesus Christ. Bless as we sing, we praise your name, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.